Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today we look at how Canada's men's soccer team qualifying for the upcoming World Cup puts the country on perhaps the biggest sporting stage of them all, and what impact that could have on our reputation beyond the soccer pitch. We talked to the author of a study that looks into how much corporations have been profiting during COVID and how much inflation is attached to rising prices that are leaving consumers holding the bag. We look at Jason Kenney's fight for survival as leader of the United Conservative Party and as Alberta Premier. But first, with dozens of Ukrainian civilians killed today after Russia attacked a crowded railway station in the eastern city of Kramatorsk, we speak with an Ontario-based paramedic volunteering in Ukraine who was among the first to arrive in the Kiev suburb of Bucha, where authorities continue to uncover evidence of war crimes committed by Russian soldiers. But we begin with another deadly day in Ukraine. At least 50 people, perhaps more, were killed and many more injured after a Russian missile attack on a crowded train station uh, in the city of Kramatorsk, that's in the east. The victims included women, kids, and the elderly. You can hear the just the sheer panic afterwards. Thousands had gathered there to leave the area in anticipation of renewed Russian military offensives around there. Reports say the tail fin of the rocket had the words, quote, for the children spray painted on the side. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson had this to say. It is a war crime indiscriminately to attack civilians and Russia's crimes in Ukraine will not go unnoticed or unpunished. Well, the attacks come as workers continue to unearth bodies from mass graves in a town that has become the center of war crimes allegations against Russian troops. The mayor of the Kiev suburb of Bucha says investigations have found at least three sites of mass shootings of civilians during the Russian occupation. Well, not long before Russian soldiers left or just just after they got forced out. My next guest moved in behind Ukrainian forces. Jordan Searle is a former British army medic. He now lives in Toronto, works for Orange Air Ambulance. He left this country in mid-March, part of a team that flew to England to drive ambulances donated to Ukraine. He then stayed in Kiev to set up an emergency medical clinic and continues to provide medical assistance, including as part of those supporting troops who moved into Bucha last weekend. He joins me now from Kiev. Jordan, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you very much for having us. Jordan, uh, if you could tell me how you wound up in Bucha, and I understand you were there long before the eyes of the world were there, uh, or long, quite a bit before the eyes of the world were there. How did you end up in Bucha, and, and what did you see? We obviously have a bunch of ambulances that we brought over, um, and we've sort of been sort of separated around between different areas around Kiev between me and my team in order to support sort of the clinical operations required. Now, it takes a bit of time to get sort of trusted with a lot of these people. And, you know, I wouldn't say we're a victim of our own success, but we, we carry a lot of trust with them now. And we're sort of tasked by them relatively, you know, daily. Can you help with X, Y, and Z? This is um, the military, right? This is the land yeah, defense forces here. Yeah, the military, the civilians, infrastructure and everything. And remember yeah. at the time, like, it's only sort of the last week that a lot of these supplies have come through, all the extra ambulances, equipment, personnel, all that kind of stuff. So there wasn't really a lot here. So the fact that there was a bunch of people that were willing to help with equipment and resources that they needed, we were we were tasked relatively well. So we ended up at this uh, this sort of frontline trauma clinic working with um, this young doctor, and um, the local police had sort of said, you know, there's a big push coming, be ready. And obviously, as uh, the world has seen, you know, the Ukrainians did a almost like a countrywide offensive um, that pushed the Russians pretty much out of majority of their country, apart from the eastern side, back to sort of uh, the Donbass and, and Ladansk reasons again. So what happened is, you know, the forward forces advanced forward. It was a lot of fighting and a lot of destruction um, of uh, Russian armored vehicles, personnel on, on both sides of this conflict here as well. And we sort of moved up in a stepwise approach behind them to provide that sort of frontline clinical support that's away from the actual fighting. So I think it's important to point out that no one had a firearm. No one was in active engagement with them. We were purely there to provide that combat service support, in essence, the, the military ambulance as such to support those wounded troops, regardless of where they were. And unfortunately, that's when the forward troops, once most of the Russians had left or been destroyed, found the horrors that were sort of unfolding. Initially, 
people couldn't really grasp what was going on. It was one or two dead civilians in the street, uh, you know, not unsurprising for everything that's going on. But then on like closer examination, then they found that people were bound and sort of almost, not almost, but they were executed. Um, and it was pretty horrific to see. And I think the only real way to sort of describe that is the fact that it was a crime. It is a war crime that's happened there. Um, people were taped to you know hands and feet together they were cable tied or bound and you know some people were even shot in the kneecaps before they were obviously shot in the head so you know it's quite graphic on on that sort of thing and it's you know it's freely out in the media now and you know yes we have to tell the story but also i think we have to be very careful and respect the dead um from what's happened there as well because it's not just one or two people we're talking over 400 odd people here were murdered in essence, through whatever we don't know why or how really it all transpired. Um, but there's definitely something that needs to be um, sort of said for that. And I think the world desperately needs to continue to keep looking at that um, as to what happened there. And I think, you know, now, um, several hour, several days, sorry, past all this, obviously the Ukrainian special police are doing their forensic investigation. I've finally seen UN trucks around and other bits and pieces. So I presume that majority of this is sort of... Um, coming into effect now but the sheer devastation of that town and what happened just it's unfathomable it, there's no logistical or, or, or tactical reason that any of that sort of happened um either troops just lost discipline or they were just absolute lunatics in the first place mm-hmm. you know houses are burnt they're ransacked it's like they've gone into people's houses looted anything worthwhile and then just cut everything else up smashed the windows they've driven armored vehicles um, through gates and side houses and everything there's no reason to do any of that in in conflict um you know i was in the military for a long time as many of your listeners probably are and at no point did any of us think oh let's just destroy all of that for no reason it just doesn't make any any sense um for it and you know there's a lot of sadness from the ukrainian people because of it it's just mindless senseless destruction um that doesn't really show any benefit in terms of everything else that happened there, you know, we did some searching of some of the buildings when one of the local dentists um, to the area that was volunteering in the trauma clinic had said, you know, I, oh, I live in Butcher. Can we try and go to my apartment? Um, and so with, with some clearance from the police, um, we were allowed to try and search um, some of the areas. And they asked us, could you search this tower block where she lives? In essence, if you imagine an apartment block. A standard apartment block. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, like 200 sort of units of like yeah. one or two bedroom sort of things like you see in downtown Calgary, Toronto, anything sort of like that. Um, and we were tasked to ask to go and have a look. Now, obviously, resources are pretty thin on the ground. Most we we're pretty confident that all the Russians are gone. Um, but uh, we took an armed guard sort of with us anyway. Um, but a case of trying to search this building. And so first thing we did when we managed to open the door to her apartment complex, imagine one of those big sort of um, security doors that requires a fob and everything. So obviously the power's out, so none of this stuff sort of works. We were able to sort of jimmy open the door. And the first thing you agreed with is a blood trail that leads up some stairs and then go, you know, it goes up, I think, if I remember rightly, three floors and then went off into an apartment. And, you know, any paramedic uh, that's listening to this will instantly recognize the smell of somebody that may have been there for a while that's been deceased um and i think there was probably many more of them in that building whether or not that person was injured outside managed to make it home and then unfortunately died waiting for help um we're never really no it was just tagged to the location pass on to the um ukrainian police for sort of ongoing uh, recovery essence in that but, uh, you know, it's stuff like and Jordan, that. Jordan, I, I gather this just was, this was, this scene was repeated again and again and again in this little suburb of Kiev. Pretty much, yeah. And it, it's not a, people think it's a small area. It's not. It's a pretty big, uh, it's a pretty big little town in essence. There's a lot of high rise buildings. Um, the hospital had been, it was still operating, but had been shelled and deliberately shot up. You know, there's no glass left in any of the windows. They're running on emergency power. You know, the staff that were left have been trying to look after people as best as they can, you know, and they said it was just absolute terror. They did guys, the Russians came in, they stole everything, they smashed everything up um, and they were left trying to provide care in a cut off region with, you know, minimal resources while under constant sort of threat and abuse of um, of soldiers. And it, it, it just is unfathomably that, you know, healthcare personnel are treated like that. We have the Geneva Convention for a reason, you know, almost everyone in the world follows it. 
you know, and unfortunately, it, you know, I think certain elements of this um, conflict have, have not. Now, it's not to tire the entire Russian army with it, because I'm sure they're not all um, like this. And, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of the young, young boys there that have been killed, their parents will probably never know that they died, you know, in a fiery death in their armoured vehicle um, from a bunch of anti-tank weapons that they probably had no chance of defending from. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, the way that the, the Russian system works is those poor parents will probably never know that their, their children are dead. I'm speaking with Jordan Searle. He's a um, he's a paramedic, works with Toronto's Orange Air Ambulance. He's volunteered. He's a former British Army medic. He's in Kiev right now, where he has been for several weeks. He was part of an initial push through the town of Bucha that we've seen uh, behind uh, the Ukrainian military, but certainly one of the first people to arrive there uh, and is describing some of what he saw. After this, we'll talk a bit more about what lies ahead for Jordan and his work, what still needs to be done in Ukraine, uh, and what some of his lasting impressions of his first five weeks have been. Uh, we'll be back. With that. I'm back with Jordan Searle, a former British Army medic who is now a paramedic in Toronto with Orange Air Ambulance. He's been in Kiev now for several weeks, uh, working near the front lines uh, as, an, as a medic, providing medical assistance where needed. You, you mentioned this. I mean, you've spent time in conflict zones. How does this compare to what you've seen in the past? And, and, and what kind of impact has that had on you so far? It's very different here. And I think, you know... <laughs> The problem is I'm worried that people will all forget about this very quickly because the next new world media thing will take over. You know, the Will Smith thing at the Grammys or whatever it was took away a lot of the attention from this. And, you know, this is something that's going to go on for a very long time. And it is like a slight humanitarian issue here. Um, The things that's going to stick with me probably the most is the, the utter devastation of this place, but the resilience of the people to come together. You know, a young fireman, was assisting us in helping, uh, you know, remove bodies. He spent four days removing the dead people from the town that he is assigned to as a fireman. And he's 19 years old. I can't imagine the psychological damage that that's going to do to that poor guy, knowing that he's probably not going to get very much mental health support because let's face it, even in Canada, CAMH is under massive pressure. So you imagine what kind of mental health support there is here, almost non-existent, bless him, you know, and this young guy and, you know, he sat and chatted with us and he had a relatively good grasp of English, but you could tell like, you know, he has to buy his own uniform. So, and everything like that, they're not issued like several sets, like we're lucky to have or anything like that. But again, all he wanted to do was make sure we were all right. And that is, I think is very moving as a society here that the whole country's come together during this this conflict, regardless of their their faith, denomination, or anything like that, and they've all stuck together, um, you know. And it, it's been very moving, and it's a, a place that's going to hold somewhere very dear in my heart, and somewhere that I intend to definitely return to several times and make it sort of a a, a a big thing because the people here are very welcoming, and I suggest everyone when it's safe to come to this area, you book holidays, you come and see this place because it is phenomenally beautiful country, and the people are absolutely fantastic. But on the plus side is it's very much a place where you shouldn't just be turning up because you want to come and help there. You have to go through a process of stuff. Otherwise, you're just going to become a hindrance, unfortunately. Do you worry at all, given what you've seen in places like Bucha? Do you worry at all about what lies ahead? We saw the bombing of a train station in Kramatorsk today. Do you worry about what's happening in other areas that are occupied or may be occupied by so by Russian forces? Yeah, I think I, this, is, this isn't the worst to, to come. Like, I think this is like the tip of the iceberg, the civilian deaths and I think from uh, Maripopol and everywhere else, I think are going to be once the dust settles and the count's finally done, I think the world's going to be very shocked if we aren't sucked into the next celebrity or social media cringe, right? And people forget about this. You know, I think it's very much happening. There are still people being killed daily here. There are still children cowering in subway stations. Uh, you know, and life has stopped for a lot of people. There is some normality in, in Kiev now, um, but the east of this country is still at war daily. What what lies ahead for you? You went there to bring these ambulances there. You stayed to set up that medical clinic. Um, uh, you, you've now been through places like Bucha. You've done just about, I'm sure you've done much more than you even expected to do. How much longer do you think you might stay? Yeah, absolutely. Our initial plan was to um, pretty much just drive and drop off the ambulances give them a quick rundown of how the equipment and everything works and then sort of sort of bid off our wells yeah. um but obviously 
once we arrived, we realized the situation. And especially at the time when we got here, like, you know, they were uh, two to four kilometers away from Kiev. You know, and there was a lot of civilian people very panicked. There was a lot of bombings happening and, you know, their system was massively overstretched. So, you know, duty first and all is, is you know, any medical professional will be the same as like, you know, well, let's see what we can do to help, you know, as long as we're not being a hindrance um, on that side of things. Now the conflict has changed quite dramatically and it's not so much now all hands to the pump in essence. It's very much a big army-led operation to the east um, and obviously we were never here to take up arms or join a military force or anything like that that was never the intention and the ukrainians are more than capable of dealing with the fight um, on their own they just need support with equipment and infrastructure so i think very soon the way things are kiev is is, is liberated in essence and it's a bit premature to say that it's over it's not it's far from it um but in terms of the russian uh, aggression directly on the capital it's, it's died down significantly there are no russian forces north of the city up to the belarusian border and everything is sort of focused on the east and i think you know you don't need to be a war scholar to figure out that you know to save face putin has to take charge of something and i think you're going to see some very big conflicts around Donetsk, ladangs and he definitely wants mariupol just because it's directly in the middle of those two areas jordan searle thank you so much for your time hats off on 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 the amount of work you've done since you've landed there and obviously we look forward to catching up when you get back home thank you very much Well, if you're a Team Canada men's soccer team fan, today brought some, or this week brought some good news. Bayern Munich midfielder and Team Canada national soccer team star Alfonso Davies returned to action this week after a months-long absence. You may remember uh, that he was suffering from symptoms of myocarditis, a mild heart condition following a bout of COVID-19. Well, he played for Bayern this week. They lost 1-0 to Spain's Villarreal in the Champions League, but uh, he was out there. He hadn't played since December 17th. This was the same week that the 21-year-old from Edmonton was named CONCACAF Player of the Year as he helped the men's team, not solely, they did pretty well without him, but he helped the men's team qualify for the World Cup for the first time since 1986. And Davies is perhaps the embodiment of a new generation of Canadian players that has come to typify why people are so excited about this particular team. He's a top star at a top European club, born to Liberian parents in a refugee camp in Ghana. His family arrived in Canada in 2005. Of course, he grew up in Edmonton. He and other players on the Canadian team also mean the Maple Leaf could make a splash at the upcoming World Cup, which is perhaps the greatest stage in sports, even more viewership on TV than the Olympics, as far as I remember. And that profile could extend well beyond the sporting world, perhaps. With more on that, I'm joined by Tim Elko. He's an Associate Professor of Kinesiology and Physical Education and a fellow with the Balsillie School of International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time on a Friday night. Yeah, thank you, Ben. So, I mean, I guess you've been watching this as well. Uh, Canadians really seem to have embraced, I mean, we certainly embraced the women's team when they did so well at the Tokyo Olympics, uh, and now we've certainly embraced the men's team. It feels like we're becoming a bit of a bit of a soccer nation. Yeah, it's been quite a, I guess, seven months, you know, with the, the women have been building success for quite a while, and sort of the gold medal was the cap of that. But the men have really, you know, they've come, I wouldn't say from nowhere, but in the last year, they've really sort of emerged and sort of captured the imagination with this World Cup qualification run. So, yeah, it, it's on the elite side, there has been sort of that, that jump, uh, certainly in terms of attention and interest, that's for sure. You've just written an article for The Conversation, a publication about uh, what this could mean for Canada, because indeed, uh, it's been a mighty long time since we've been at a World Cup. I remember when we played in Mexico in 1986, and Soccer has changed a lot since 1986. Let's be, let's be clear. It's become much more, even more of a global game. But this is perhaps sports' greatest stage. Absolutely. You know, the, the estimated viewership, I mean, and, you know, obviously there's double and triple counting here, but the estimated that for 2018 in Russia, it was 3.5 billion people who watched effectively men kick a ball around a field, you know, if we want to simplify it. Um, So it's pretty incredible in terms of its reach, in terms of its popularity, and it absolutely matches the Olympics. And certainly from a global appeal, it, it goes beyond the Olympics. And your point was that this is an exciting, young, you know, multicultural team with 
players from around the world that anyone turning on the TV and seeing this team play is going to find something to like about that and that like about them, provided they do okay. Um, and that's a pretty engaging thing when you're at the World Cup because they are a really exciting young team. They remind me of, you know, the French teams of the over the years. The German teams certainly have become much more uh, diverse. The Belgian teams diverse. Yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting change within the national teams around the world, and one certainly we see on on TV and World Cups and European Championships more is, you know, the the multi ethnic sort of uh, visual of nations like France, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Belgium, uh, uh, England as well. And so Canada is seeing that as well um, with this group. Now, I mean, it is interesting with the Canadian team. It is a very Toronto centric group. Uh, and so in many ways, it's it's sort of a, it re- reflects the diversity of Canada and that multi-ethnicity. But there are there are sort of still gaps there and there's still sort of people who probably don't see themselves there, but they probably caught up in the excitement of it as, as well. When we look ahead to the World Cup, though, one of the points that you made is that it does give an opportunity, um, and, and specifically because we pay so much attention to hockey, and obviously, mm. you know, I was interviewing a former Finnish prime minister last week, and we were talking about hockey, of course, and he used the term ice hockey. And I forgot that even in Europe, they use the term ice hockey. And you remember, it reminds you that hockey, well, universally appealing to a lot of, you know, appealing in a lot of countries, or at least popular in several countries, is just not a global game the way, certainly not the way soccer. Yeah, I, you know, hockey is, you know, you know, for, for so long, it's been part of our identity as, an, as a nation, you know, that hockey is our sport. And what's fascinating about, you know, I'll throw basketball into this to a degree, you know, basketball and, and, and soccer sort of have reflected a different looking Canada. You know, we certainly saw that with the Jurassic Park scenes outside Toronto with the Raptors run. And we absolutely see it with this, the, the men's soccer team and the women's soccer team. We see sort of diversity. And, you know, as I said in the article, you know, hockey, hockey has desperately tried to, you know, increase its diversity. It's tried to overcome some of those challenges. But it just seems there just seems to be a stubbornness to them to be overcome that where soccer and basketball have been able to, to do that. But where soccer goes even further is it, it is absolutely the global sport. I mean, you know. You know, as you mentioned, you know, it's it's ice hockey to most of the world. We're here, it's just hockey. And, you know, we're, we're football, soccer, you know, it literally is played in every part of the world. And it's something that's, that's you know, has the attention of the entire world. So Canada being at this stage is incredibly significant, you know, on the sporting side. But I think it even goes beyond that. Yeah, you did get into that. Um, I was thinking, you know, we are Belgium uh, are the second ranked team in the world. They're, they mm-hmm. are going to be with, a, with an aging team, but still a very popular team, including guys like Kevin De Bruyne and, uh, and so forth. That We're playing them in the opener. That's going to be a heavily watched game. Uh, so it'll be, because that's going to be Canada's big, big step out onto that stage. And you felt like there could be influence beyond just sports. Uh, explain that if you could. Well, I think, you know, I, I was at that game where they, they beat Jamaica and, you know, occupational hazard as I, I started to think about all the dimensions of meaning here. I mean, there's the soccer piece of it. I mean, what this means for Canada from a soccer perspective, you know, is pretty significant. You know, the, the women's success over the past decade plus and then the, the emergence of the men. And you've got stars like Christine Sinclair. You've got you know, Alfonso Davies, who you mentioned in the opening, who are, are global stars. I mean, they're they're known around the world and so on the soccer level at the sort of the mega sport soccer uh, level you know canada is sort of emerging but we have a long history of grassroots participation um and so so canada's been successful there but now that's sort of meeting up with this this world stage you know then we talked about the diversity and that that sort of reflection of canada in, in different ways um but then you start talking about you know ideas of of you know canada on the world stage and whether it wants to be or not Football, you know, soccer, because it's on the global stage, because it is this this powerful tool, um, it becomes politically involved and politically engaged, whether people want it to be or not. And so it starts to be something that, you know, discussions and elements of the World Cup will, it will go far beyond just the games. You know, when Canada plays Belgium, I'm sure we'll be engrossed in the game. But they're playing in Qatar, which, you know, has been raised all sorts of questions for quite a while since they were, you know, picked as the host for these these games and, you know, fairly controversially. At the same time, I remember, I remember that selection. Uh, Russia was the other country <laughs> that was picked uh, at that same time and where they played in 2018. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, politics and soccer always go hand in hand. And we know Russia's always been booted from this qualification mm. around and will not be at the World Cup no matter what. Uh, but one can imagine that given 
how volatile the political situation is around the world right now, that that's going to creep in to this World Cup for sure. I mean, you mentioned some of the human rights issues, obviously, in, in Qatar leading up uh, to this World Cup. I guess that's something Canada is going to have to think about, because when you go play an Olympic hockey tournament, um, I mean, China might have been an exception. There were no NHLers there, but uh, there isn't a lot of politics involved, for instance, in or, or maybe in Sochi there would have been. <laughs> maybe I take that back. But not quite the same kind of scrutiny that politics here will have because our soccer players may be asked about some of these issues. Well, if you see, you know, what's happening, you know, um, some of the some of the more prominent European countries. So Denmark, or sorry, Norway, who didn't end up qualifying, but had some pretty prominent players, uh, you know, made some, you know, wore T-shirts in terms of human rights. And they were followed by Germany and the Netherlands, who are going to be there. You know, uh, the, the Dutch in particular have, have, you know, talked openly about, you know, um, potentially protesting, you know, at the games. And then, you know, England, you know, at their last, international camp you know they they had a conversation and, and their manager came out and talked about and their, their team captain came out and talked about you know expressing some of the con- their concerns about qatar being hosted now these are prominent you know top of the top of the table you know football you know n- national teams I and mean, canada's not there as excited as we are but you know canada still does have this place i mean we're a g7 country so politically we still are viewed you know as a as a you know they call us a middle power politically you know, and now all of a sudden you, you enter our, our, our soccer team into the fray and they're going to be asked questions. Our government's going to be asked questions when, when the games roll around. And then, of course, we're hosting in 2026. And, you know, that's you know, the attention of the world is then going to turn onto Canada and the United States and Mexico. And so these questions are only going to gain momentum and the, the issues that go beyond the actual you know, events and, and performance of the Canadian team as soccer players is going to be expanded and widened. Do you have any concerns at all? I mean, you were at the Jamaica game. I watched it on TV. I spoke to someone else last week, a reporter, earlier this week, actually, a reporter with The Athletic who was at that same game who said it was just the most electric atmosphere you could imagine at a soccer game in this country. It felt like you were watching something that you had seen on TV from another part of the world. It was, it was that invigorating. Do you think there's going to be any pressure now on this team, considering not only is it a World Cup, but it's a World Cup being played, you know, in what are going to be, let's be honest, relatively uh, peculiar circumstances. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be challenging. I mean, it's going to be happening at a different time of year than international competition. So they're hosting in November, ending in early December because of the heat. And so that's going to change. And so there's going to be a huge disruption in terms of seasons uh, for the players who play in, in North America in MLS. You know, they're going to be at the end of their season. Some of them are going to be in the middle of their season. So, so on the sport, again, on the sporting side, there's going to be unique challenges to this tournament that we haven't seen before. Uh, but I also think that there's going to be unique challenges to all the athletes and, and, and the various teams and, and people involved in terms of, you know, how they deal with the political issues and the pressures that, you know, that come with this. And I think, you know, we've seen sort of the rise of, of athlete protests and athlete sort of political engagement. You know, certainly through the pandemic, there seems to have been, you know, a real spur in terms of, of athletes getting involved and getting engaged. And so, you know, will that continue in Qatar? We, we, and, and then, you know, is that fair to ask athletes to, to be involved? And, and, you know, how will that affect the way they play? And so I just think there's so many open questions on the sporting side, on the political side, you know, that are all going to come sort of to, he- to a head in, in November when, when these games begin. I'm speaking with Tim Elcombe. He's the Associate Professor of Kinesiology and Physical Education and a fellow with the Balsillie School of International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University. We're talking about Team Canada's qualification, uh, the men's team for the uh, upcoming World Cup in Qatar, uh, and, and some of the broader implications of it, because it is a huge global stage for a team that hasn't been on that stage since 1986. And of course, soccer has changed, politics have changed, uh, and there will be pressures, uh, even in the, even in the host country where it's being played. After this, we'll talk about more, just a bit more about how this team, though, could really inspire a lot of young Canadians, probably already has at this point. But uh, if Canada is going to become a quote-unquote football nation, as John Herdman, the manager of the team, called us uh, a soccer nation, what might that mean for the future? And, and how inspiring will it be to see uh, young Canadians embracing this game the way we've embraced sports like hockey and, and others over the years? That's next. I'm speaking with Tim Elcombe. He's an associate professor of kinesiology and phys ed at, and fellow with the Balsillie School of International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University. We're talking soccer tonight. We were talking about the men's team 
team in the World Cup and qualifying uh, for Qatar uh, in the fall and what a big stage that will be. I just noticed, of course, the women's uh, national team are playing Nigeria tonight uh, in Vancouver. It's nil-nil at the half. Uh, but I'm just thinking back to the to the to players on that team, how familiar we've become with the Christine Lee, uh, Sinclairs, who's now the all-time international leading goal scorer, Stephanie Labay, of course, who's retiring, and just how much they paved the way for this sort of enthusiasm we're seeing now for the men's team because we'd gotten used to watching successful soccer. It just wasn't the, it wasn't the men's team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going back to the 2015 uh, World Cup that we hosted, you know, the women were successful. There were great crowds. There was great energy. And as you said, the, these women became household names. And, 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 you know, it was with the women first where, where soccer became you know, our, our soccer players, our footballers, as we probably have to start calling it now that we're on the global stage, were, were you know, in, in the, you're playing for the best teams in Europe. They were playing at the top levels. They were recognized as stars. And, you know, I think that was, a, you know, the women's role in this, I think, is, is huge in terms of, of you know, as, Hurt, as John Herman said, you know, us becoming a football nation. You know, it really has started with the women, and now the men have sort of picked that up. I remember seeing the women's team and John Herdman actually in our studios when I was covering the 2012 Olympics. That was a heartbreaking Olympics for the Canadian women's team. Uh, but they were still, I mean, you recognized Herdman's, not just Herdman's, you recognized their skill, but also the enthusiasm that team had and how much the coach was part of that enthusiasm. And it's interesting to see him now with the men's team uh, doing something quite similar. He, he seems to be able to manage to create a cohesion that is, I guess, primordial if you're going to be a successful team coach, national team coach. Yeah, he seems to have just that, that perfect ability. You know, coaching international sort of national teams is different from all indications of, of coaching a club team. And it seems as if he has just the perfect sort of ability to coach at that level, you know, rallying this group together. He only gets them, certainly on the men's side, you know, he only gets them as a group, you know, periodically through the year, yet he's able to create this cohesiveness and this sense of, you know, team unity. And, you know, he certainly established that with the women. And, you know, he just seems to have the magic touch. And, and I think that really bodes well for, for the actual competition because, you know, national National teams perform differently than club teams and often are, you know, the sum of their parts are greater than, than the individual talent just because of that extra, you know, national sense and motivation. And he seems to have really bottled that. You know, Italy didn't make the World Cup, of course, which we're always, uh, you know, like like to remind my Italian friends that that they have, that they should really be cheering for Canada. So we've got Morocco, um, Croatia, and Belgium in in our group, which is a pretty tough group. But the bookies in England have been saying that Canada could be a bit of a sleeper here. Uh, if we do well, it could be quite interesting to see what kind of we could. I mean, I know this is getting way ahead of ourselves, but Canada has the opportunity, I think, here to be a bit of a Cinderella, like a fan favorite, a Cinderella team at this World Cup. They do. You know, my I've got really great friends in Wales, and, and they experienced this at the European Championships uh, right. in, in 2016. And, you know, you see that, that opportunity, what that does. You know, and of course, for Wales, it's their one time to be an actual, you know, nation, because typically they're, they're Great Britain. Um, and so I think Canada has that same opportunity. You know, if they were to get out of the group stage, if they were up to, be, to finish, you know, the top two of their group and move into the group stage and have a knockout game, it would be incredible. And, you know, you mentioned it before the break, you know, in some ways... <laughs> The, the the pressure on them now the expectation is more than just showing up and and in some ways you know that that's pretty uh, pretty immense you know the idea that they qualified is an incredible accomplishment now i think the expectation is hey we, we think you can win a couple of games we think you can get to the knockout phase and uh you know if they did um certainly that would i think that would capture the attention but either way i think the the, the roots are there uh, we certainly see with the women's team for a while now, but I think the roots are there now on the men's side that this will be somewhat sustainable. I think there's an infrastructure at the elite level that's being developed that's going to allow Canada to be, you know, relatively successful. You know, probably, you know, we can aspire to be, you know, like we're a middle power nation politically, but a middle power, you know, in terms of the football world. And I'm just going to be happy if they score a goal because I did watch yeah, the 86 right. World World Cup and we we didn't score. So there's still history to be made in Qatar if uh, Canada manages to score one early. Uh, Tim Elcombe, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Enjoy that.
Well, a day after the federal government released a new budget with more than $50 billion in spending, leaders were out today selling the plan to the public as they want to do on a Friday before a week into a holiday. So they won't be sitting, I don't imagine, next week. So they're off selling this budget plan. It includes $10 billion to help ease the housing crisis, including to speed up construction and a two-year ban on foreign investors buying homes. Here's Finance Minister Christia Freeland. At a time when our chief economic problem is that there is too much demand chasing too little supply, this set of people-centered policies provides exactly what Canada needs right now. Finance Minister Christia Freeland, affordability and inflation are clearly one of the main challenges this government faces going forward. And the budget certainly reflects a concern on the government's behalf that these issues matter to us, the voters. Consumer prices alone, as we well know, because we talk about it all the time on this show, are growing at a pace not seen in 30 years. And while there is a lot of talk about inflation these days, my next guest says we're not talking enough about one of the potential causes of the price hikes we're seeing from the grocery store to the gas station, and that's corporate profit driven. Two new reports released this week suggest that a substantial portion of the inflation Canadian consumers are experiencing today are attributable to companies boosting their prices well beyond the rate at which they are paying for their supplies. My next guest wrote one of those reports. Joining joining me from Peterborough is DT Cochran. He's an economist with the Canadians for Tax Fairness, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that advocates for fair and progressive tax policies. He's also the author of The Rise of Corporate Profits in the Time of COVID. DT Cochran, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. We've been talking a lot about rising prices these days. Obviously, it's on everyone's mind. You put forth that we haven't been talking enough about rising corporate profits. And what's the relation between those two things? Well, there's this idea out there that prices are set by competitive markets, that this is the balancing of supply and demand. And for the most part, that simply isn't true. Prices are set by the people who put the prices on things. And for the most part, that's corporations. And it appears that in the tumult of our current economy, as we you know, slowly recover from the pandemic, the corporations have, have taken advantage to substantially boost their profit margins by hiking the prices that consumers face uh, when they go and buy their groceries. Um, how much, well, I suppose I should ask, how did you figure that out? This is an idea that exists within uh, within economics, sort of at the fringes. The mainstream idea is that inflation is the result of too many dollars chasing too few goods. But thankfully, there has been a dedicated core of economists who have said, no, there's a much simpler explanation for inflation. It's that the people who control prices increase those prices. We were looking at corporate profits, looking to see who has done particularly well during the pandemic. And I ran some numbers and saw that in 2021, corporate profit margins made a huge jump. And given the current discourse and concerns, understandable concerns about inflation, this just seemed like an obvious explanation for what is going on. An obvious, simple explanation. Corporations are making making huge profits because they're increasing the markup over their own costs. And ultimately, the people who bear all of those costs are everyday Canadians. We have seen, of course, the idea that costs are going up for, for organizations, that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of rising prices or shrinking products, shrinkflation as we call it, uh, is due to these rising costs that companies are having to bear. So they're being passed on to the consumer. You found that that the situation was a little more complicated than that. Uh, in some ways, it's even simpler than that, that corporate sales have increased and their costs actually haven't increased that much, while their profits have increased substantially. So we know that corporations have been facing some increasing prices themselves. So that suggests that the the actual quantity of inputs is falling, and this could be what you're referring to, this shrinkflation. And unless they have had some stupendous 
uh, improvements in productivity for which there is zero evidence, then this massive jump in profits almost certainly has to be because they've been hiking prices. And when you combine that with the rising CPI, the circle seems to be complete. Corporations increasing prices gives them higher profit margins and you and I see higher sticker prices uh, when we go out and buy our necessities. Yeah, certainly the consumer price index is up higher than it has been in, uh, or at least jumping faster than it has in decades. And I think we're all seeing uh, the impacts of that. How much did you, how much profit are they making? The specific numbers, I'm not the guy who has those coming oh. right out of my head. I can tell you the profit margin. They've also, sure. the average profit margin uh, over the last 20 years has run close to 9%. And uh, in 2021, they achieved a profit margin of almost 16%. So coming pretty close to doubling their usual profit margin. That's a massive, massive jump. We visualize this. If you see the graph, you can see the huge spike upward uh, in profit margins of Canadian corporations in 2021. And given how so many of us are still facing economic difficulties. It's just especially galling that the corporations have managed to pad their bottom line so substantially. You're, I mean, I, I can hear a, a young child in the background. You're obviously a fam- you have a family. How has it impacted you? Where have you seen these these big jumps? And, and after doing this research, how did you sort of reassess what you were looking at when you were out there spending money? Just going to the grocery store, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be solidly middle class. And I think for many of us, we just take for granted that groceries are more or less affordable uh, and we can treat ourselves and, you know, eat fairly well. And you go and you just start seeing, oh, that's higher than usual. Did I buy something unusual? Oh, it's gone up even more. And so you just have to start taking notice. And I think it's that moment of having to take notice that people really start feeling this, this squeeze and start looking, well, where are the prices rising? Where do I have to start making some, some difficult choices? And unfortunately, the narrative that they're being fed about where that inflation is coming from is totally misguided and could lead to some really bad policy choices. Yeah, I mean, when 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 the story is that there's too much money, mostly because the government printed too much money uh, out there, and therefore prices are going up because, of course, prices are going up. People are willing to pay more for them, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, what is the what can be the impact of that long term? When when the government spends its money, that becomes someone's income, and then that person spends their income. And that becomes someone else's income. So this money ends up spreading throughout the economy. Now, inevitably, it trickles up. When you look at the at this analysis that you did, it's obviously no economic analysis is foolproof. But is there any room for this being part of the story as opposed to the whole story? Sure. This is this is part of the story. We want to get this as part of the discussion. There have definitely been supply chain issues. Um, there have been uh, backlogs at ports. Uh, the situation in the Ukraine is definitely having effects. We're not denying that any of that is at play. What we want is for more directed, specific analysis to identify okay, which prices are rising and why are they rising and what can we do about it? We don't think that simplistic solutions like raising interest rates are the way to go. Raising interest rates are not going to solve supply chain issues. Raising interest rates aren't going to reduce corporate markups. We need to know where exactly the inflation is coming from if we're going to respond in an appropriate and a just manner. I'm speaking with DT Cochran. He's an economist with Canadians for Tax Fairness, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that advocates for fair and progressive tax policies. We're talking about what role corporate profits are having, price increases uh, leading to corporate profits are having in inflation in the prices that we're now paying when we go to buy stuff. And we've all certainly seen increases and trying to figure out exactly who could be responsible for those increases. And uh, DT Cochran's done research showing that corporate profits have certainly played a role uh, in those rising prices. When we come back, uh, there were some expectations from your organization uh, in yes- for yesterday's federal budget about how to address or at least recognize this issue. Uh, we'll see if uh, if they saw what they liked or liked what they saw after this.
I'm back with DT Cochran, an economist with Canadians for Tax Fairness, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that advocates for fair and progressive tax policies. We're talking about inflation, about the rising cost of just about everything, and what could be at the root of it. And of course, according to uh, to some research that DT Cochran has done, corporate profits, rising prices by by corporations. Uh, is playing an important role here. It's not just more money floating around or more supply and demand. It is literally companies raising the prices of stuff that we buy every day and then reaping the profits of it. Um, you were hoping to see, you had some 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 prescriptive uh, comments made earlier this week about what you hope to see in the federal budget. How much of it did you see? Uh, very little. There were meager measures uh, taking us in the right direction, but it's just simply too little for the issues that we face. And the pandemic could have taught the government some important lessons about the necessity of public institutions. When the pandemic happened, no one said, oh, well, let's let the market sort it out. We knew that the government had to step into the breach and make sure that people ability to live was maintained and it it offered an unprecedented level of financial support and the situation on the ground has changed and so we understand that the the government specific policies can change but we have other crises going on not least of which is a climate crisis the ipcc's latest report is as dire as it has ever been we need public institutions to lead. And that is going to require substantial investment. And what we saw with the spending for the pandemic was that the money ends up trickling up and benefiting those at the top of our economic hierarchy. That's where taxes come in to make sure that the government can continue to fund the programs that are necessary. So the Surtax on the banks, for example, we're happy to see some uh, increase in the corporate income tax, but there's no reason it should be limited to banks and life insurance companies. There's no reason it should be limited to uh, profits over $1 billion in the case of the 15% uh, one-time tax increase. There's no reason it should be limited to $100 million for the ongoing 1.5% tax increase. For this subset of a subset of our economy, uh, that extra one and a half percent takes their corporate income tax rate to 16 and a half percent, which is still incredibly low when you look at things historically. So there's so much more that the government needs to do spending wise, so much more that it can do revenue wise. And we didn't see those things. Instead, we saw what what has been called quite widely a fairly modest budget. The government's obviously under a lot of pressure to rein in the very kind of spending that you're talking about, or at least the very kind of tax increases that we're talking about in the name of productivity, in the name of you know competitive corporate tax rates. Uh, how does how do you square those things? The the concerns about capital flight, it's called, uh, have always been overblown. Uh, the research shows that tax rates are ultimately a fairly um, minor concern for corporations. There are other things that determine where they make productive investment. And in the case of Canada, obviously, our natural resources are an important uh, determinant in the investment that comes here, uh, as well as the resources of our own of our skilled labor. Um, Those are much more important. And a lot of the things that make Canada a a valuable place to invest are things provided by our public institutions. For example, um, secure, reliable infrastructure. How are we making sure that our infrastructure will continue to function properly as climate change driven disasters put increased pressure on them. We saw this with the flooding in BC, uh, the washout of highways. How can we ensure quick recovery or that that infrastructure won't be lost at all? Those are the types of things that ultimately matter if you want to provide businesses with greater certainty to to be able to make the investments in this country. Tax rates are not super high on that list. Secondly, What are we talking about when we talk about capital flight? If a company decides to pull out of Canada, say, for example, when GM shut down its production plant in Oshawa, well, the plant is still there. 
all the workers with their skills are still there. Canada's natural resources don't leave with companies when they pull out. So if the private sector is not making the investments that we need, again, we need our public institutions to make the investments. The labor's there, the resources there, there are things to be done. Let's do it. All that aside, all the studying aside, has it surprised you at all that within the talk about inflation, within the talk about the affordability crisis, that a lot of the anger has in fact been pointed at government? It's not surprising because the narrative that inflation is government's fault, that inflation is driven by excessive government spending, that has just been hammered at us for decades. And it just gets parroted by people who don't know any better. And why should they? We have not had a platform to offer this alternative perspective. Mainstream economists who like to um, claim that markets are or could be or should be competitive have absolutely ruled the roost. Thankfully, one of the things that has come out of the pandemic is that more economic ideas are being heard. It's clear that mainstream economists don't have uh, uh, hegemony over how the economy actually works. And in fact, often the claims they make about how the economy works seem totally at odds with what's actually going on. So thankfully, more voices are being heard. And the idea that corporations increasing prices, as simple as that idea is, as obvious as it seems once you hear it, is now being put out there. So hopefully more people will start to question the dominant narrative. DT Cochran, thank you so much for your perspective tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, it certainly is crunch time for Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. He will deliver a speech, a last pitch, really, tomorrow at the United Conservative Party, as United Conservative Party members will begin deciding via a mail-in ballot whether or not Kenny will get to stay on as leader. Uh, Jason Kenny again, making that last pitch um, speech tomorrow around 1 p.m. local time. The former leader of Alberta's Wild Rose Party, meantime, is officially back in the legislature. Brian Jean was sworn in Thursday as the newest member of Premier Jason Kenney's UCP. He won a by-election a ways back in Fort McMurray, Lac La Biche. Jean, though, is fighting to get Kenny out of there as leader in the upcoming leadership vote. And he says from what he's seen, the voting rolls are a mess. He wonders if the vote will be fair, but he thinks if it is, Kenny's gone. Let's be clear, the process has not been fair up to today. They're playing games and uh, there will be more to come on that in the, in the future. But uh, you know, this is about making sure that members have a voice. And if there is a fair race, Jason Kenny will no longer be the premier after that race. New UCP MLA Brian Jean there. Well, with more on this political saga that never seems to end and always gets more fascinating and much more joining me from Edmonton is political columnist Graham Fraser. Graham, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. Hello. This has been, yeah, hi, can you hear me? Yep. Uh, by the way, it's Thompson. Thompson, sorry about that. I don't know how yeah, I just okay. there. My mistake. <laughs> so okay. That was my, that was a typo from earlier. Well, that's off to a bad start, Graham. I'm sorry there about you go. that. Graham Thompson, political columnist, joins me now from Edmonton. Uh, forgive my typo. One thing that isn't uh, being misconstrued is just how bitter this fight has gotten uh, between Jason Kenney and uh, and Brian Jean and everyone else. So where does this stand? How much is riding on this speech tomorrow? Do you think everyone's pretty ma- pretty much made up their mind? Well, this is a big question. Um, they, they're doing a speech. It's going to be a, it's a virtual meeting now. Um, it's going to be online. They'll do a speech to the any party member that wants to sign sign up and actually watch his speech. And this is a big question right now. It's because, look, the vote was supposed to be tomorrow in Red Deer. 15,000 members of the UCP had signed up, paid $100. We're going to drive from around the province to Red Deer to vote yes or no on Kenny's leadership. And then suddenly, two weeks ago, the UCP executive, the Conservative Party executive, said, no, no, let's do the vote as a mail-in ballot, and that'd be more democratic. So instead of just 15,000 people who are gonna drive there in person, let's do it to all for all 55,000 UCP, UCP members across the province and let, let them uh, 
take part in the vote. But what was really happening is it appeared that Kenny was going to lose that vote tomorrow because a lot of people who were signing up to the UCP and registering to, to go to that, that, that vote were really angry at Kenny and wanted to just enjoy the moment to kick him out as party leader and then completely destroy his premiership. So the party, the executive, has bought him more time. So yes, so the clock starts ticking this weekend. Kenny will have a speech tomorrow. Um, he'll be uh, reaching out to, uh, to members of the party. And then there'll be ballots sent out to these 55,000 members. Then they have until May the 11th to return the ballot. It'll be scrutinized at that point, And we should know the results by May 18th. So rather than knowing the results tomorrow, we have to wait another five weeks or so. But yes, the question now is, can he start changing people's minds? I don't think tomorrow's speech is going to do it. He's going to have to try and the next month or so reach out to, to members. I imagine he'll be doing a ton of various uh, happy and good news announcements about how things are improving in the province, and they certainly are improving. And he's trying to um, convince these party members. There's another 40,000 who weren't going to vote uh, at that meeting in Red Deer who now can vote, and Kenny is really hoping these People, there'll be most of them, he's called the mainstream conservatives who will listen to him and then vote to support him then over the next month. But tomorrow is a kickoff and we'll see how things progress over the next month. But we won't know the actual answer until May 18th. Yeah, it's a while, right? I mean, I, 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 when we first started speaking about this, maybe six weeks, five weeks ago, perhaps, it, we were really looking forward to tomorrow because tomorrow was going to be the big day. And obviously people who were motivated enough to hop in their cars, whatever, to drive to Red Deer probably were thinking that they were going to go there to get rid of Jason Kenney. And you're right. Obviously, this changes the dynamic quite significantly. Um, what is his pitch to keep his job? He'll be going through the list of things he's accomplished since the election. He was elected in 2019 on a um, platform for more jobs, uh, a better economy and more pipelines, and also to balance the budget and go to war with the federal um, liberals under Justin Trudeau. So he'll be explaining that, of course, the pandemic derailed him because then he was forced to you know, um, work with uh, with uh, Trudeau and he ran a huge deficit and the pandemic meant that he was in intruding on people's freedoms. And a lot of his members did not like that. So he'll be saying to them, look, I didn't do things perfectly during the pandemic, but look, things are really starting to improve now. And he's right. Uh, the price of oil is skyrocketed. And that means uh, billions of dollars more into the provincial treasury. Uh, he's uh, issued a balanced budget for the first time in eight years in Alberta, there'll be a balanced budget was announced uh, back in, in uh, February. He also be talking about there's more jobs coming. The economy is recovering. The, the pandemic restrictions have been lifted. So there's a real sense he's saying of opportunity and optimism in Alberta. So he'll be uh, trying to paint this basically as all about him, that he's done all this. Of course, the price of oil is a world price. He has no control over that. But he'll be painting this very rosy picture. And I imagine taking a few swipes at the NDP and his favorite um, punching bag, Justin Trudeau. So this is a way of trying to reconnect with his members to try and convince them that he is worth saving. I imagine the calculation will really come down. And I guess this is what Brian Jean, and for listeners who don't know who Brian Jean is, uh, he was once leader of the Wild Rose Party. They were going to, I mean, he was finished second in the last leadership race to Jason Kenney. There was this acrimonious fallout. He left. Now he's back in the same party. And essentially, uh, you know, the, 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 within the household, trying to get rid of the master of the household at the time being. Um, I guess the question comes down to some extent is electability, right? Brian Jean's big argument is that Jason Kenney cannot beat Rachel Notley in an election. And it seems to be, I mean, I don't know how convincing an argument that is, but it seems like he's been holding on to it. Yes. In fact, there was a poll out this week showing um, that Albertans would be more amenable to a UCP under anybody else but um, Jason Kenney. And in fact, when it comes to being, you know, next, next election, uh, Kenney would fair worse, according to the public opinion poll, I guess think HQ did the, the opinion poll, he would do worse than, um, than Brian Jean in the public's eyes. And also, 
don't forget Danielle Smith. You know, like Alberta politics has, has gone completely bizarre because you're right. Not only has Brian Jean come back on the scene after losing the UCP leadership and then going off into the wilderness, he's come back. He won the um, Fort McMurray by-election. Uh, on his platform was elect me and I'll help bring down the party leader. <laughs> and then no, it's got, remarkable. It is, and it, and then last week Danielle Smith, who is also a former leader of the Wild Rose. Uh, she led that infamous floor crossing by nine members of the Wild Rose to the PC government back in 2014. And that caused a huge controversy, big backlash. That's one reason why the PC government was defeated in 2015 by the NDP. And she has been reviled in conservative circles, but she is back as well, wants to uh, contest the nomination in Livingston, the cloud that's a riding in the southwest, um, the very far southwest of Alberta. And she wants to then become leader eventually as well. So like she is notorious and she is tainted, but even she feels that she has a better chance of leading the UCP <laughs> to victory than Jason Kenney. And the fact that you've got Brian Jean and Daniel Smith, both former members and leaders of the Wild Rose, getting involved in this shows that the United Conservative Party is not that united. And this is a major problem for Kenny because the, the two streams of thought right now, people who support Kenny are saying, look, if you, if you bounce Kenny out, um, that'll lead to divisions in the party and you'll lose the next election to the NDP. But then the other side is saying, well, hold on, Kenny is so unpopular right now. If we stick with them, we'll lose the next election. See, if these competing uh, ideologies and arguments going on within the UCP, it is certainly not a very united party these days. I suppose if you're the NDP, you you adhere to that old that old saying: if your enemies if enemies making mistakes, just step out of the way. Right? Well, yeah, and the NDP and Alberta is doing quite well. Public opinion polls. Kenny has bounced back a little um, because you know the, the price of oil is bringing billions of dollars to Alberta, and we've got um, a balanced budget, things like that. But still, sixty um, percent of Albertans do not like his leadership. And in fact. Uh, the recent Think HQ poll shows that um, like 61% of party members want a new, a new leader. And the NDP is sort of standing back. You're right. They'll just say, look, um, the UCP is so immersed and obsessed with this leadership um, mess that it's, it's too busy to deal with the everyday problems of Albertans. And they're leaving it at that. That They're not getting themselves involved in it. Just let these guys hit themselves over the head. Uh, between now and the next election. And they're quite happy to let the UCP do that. Graham Thompson. Uh, I'm speaking with Graham Thompson at, from Edmonton Political Columnist. We're talking about the ongoing saga that is the, the not-so-united Conservative Party uh, and a speech that Jason Kenney will be giving tomorrow to UCP membership ahead of uh, a mail-in ballot system that will take weeks to resolve. Uh, we should know by May 18th whether he manages to hold on to his leadership or not. When we come back, I want to ask you briefly about... Um, about some of the tweets lately, because of course all of us noticed the tweet of him trying to fill up the truck with gas and not not and not uh, not succeeding, and just wondering what kind of damage he's done to himself and his reputation within the province when he makes those sort of mistakes. We'll be back with that. I was speaking with political columnist Graham Thompson from Edmonton. We've been talking about the saga that is the United Conservative Party's uh, sudden. Well. <laughs> They're going to have a vote over the next several weeks, a mail-in ballot, uh, to decide Jason Kenney's future, both as leader of the party and as premier. Uh, Graeme, I want to ask you a bit about, about both the climate plan and the budget, because I gather these have both served as useful documents for, the, uh, for Jason Kenney's entourage to try and you know, cause some, you know, stir up a bit of a fuss in Alberta about, uh, about bad old evil Ottawa. Yes. So you have... Um the federal government trying to reduce emissions and uh, the Alberta government is pushing back and saying this is an insane emissions plan. And that was actually an op-ed written by the environment minister, Jason Nixon. Um, I saw that. He used yeah, the word insane think, more, than, more than once, Greg. Oh, yeah, he yeah several times. Two or three times. And, and, and he kept using the term, though, liberal NDP coalition government. Of course, it's not, it's not a coalition government. It's just an agreement between the, uh, the two parties, and there's no NDP MP sitting in, in cabinet. But still, it plays into narrative. Uh, this very much this bash the NDP, bash the federal liberals, bash Justin Trudeau, any chance they get. And um, Nixon um, wrote... Uh, an op-ed calling this uh, the plan to reduce emissions um, 
insane. And the thing is, the federal environment minister, Stephen Gilbo, wrote back to Nixon saying, hey, hold on for a second there, buddy. You got some of your facts wrong, um, that we're still allowing emissions. Sorry, we're still allowing uh, more, more production. That the, the emissions cap is not to mean you have to cut production. In fact, you can still increase production by a million barrels a day from Alberta. And then Nixon shot back and said, yeah, but you're still going to be putting a cap on it so we can't open up barrels a day. You have, you have this tit for tat going back and forward. And this is, again, see, this still plays back to the leadership race. I'm sorry, the vote, rather. Uh, see, all roads lead back to the leadership vote because what's happening here is that Part of the reason that people are so upset with, with Kenny is a lot of conservatives, especially in rural areas, think he's done too much to restrict their freedoms during the pandemic. But also, they thought he has not done enough to stand up to the federal government. And he promised that, you know, I'll fight for Alberta tooth and nail. And during the pandemic, you have to work with um, the federal government. You know, necessarily, it's a pandemic. You need to work, governments work together. But this still irritated people who thought he isn't doing enough to stand up to the, you know, to, to Justin Trudeau. And so now Kenny is going hammer and tong, criticizing Trudeau at any chance he gets. And then this is a golden opportunity now where you have the federal government saying it's going to um, limit emissions because of climate change. And you have the Alberta government saying, aha, all they're trying to do here is shut down Alberta's oil and gas industry. Of course, that's ridiculous. The federal government is paying like $20 billion plus to expand the Trans Mountain Pipeline to get more of Alberta's oil to the West Coast. So, you know, so, but again, it's, it's a narrative that plays well with angry conservatives in Alberta. And right now, Kenny is desperate to keep them on side, to convince them to support him if they're members of the UCP. And this includes bashing um, Ottawa again and again and again. And a weird thing about it is that uh, the federal budget came out this week, yesterday, actually, right helps Alberta, um, and Alberta is sort of reluctantly saying, yeah, okay, fine, on the issue of carbon capture and sequestration, or actually now it's called right. carbon capture utilization and sequestration, because Alberta is really big on hoping to expand uh, a big program on hydrogen, blue hydrogen, and that requires a lot of carbon sequestration underground. So, right. and there's like there's, uh, several, $2.6 billion in the budget towards that, and Alberta likes that, saying, yes, thank you, Ottawa. So in this one little glimmer of hope that the two are working side by side on this issue, but otherwise, it's just yeah, all out war. Because I saw, of course, that Jagmeet Singh was was angry about that part of the budget. So I, I you get the impression, of course, that Alberta might be relatively happy about it. I, I, we have a couple of minutes left. Speaking of gas, I did want to ask you about about that Jason Kenney video of him trying and failing to pump gas uh, over the last week. Do those kinds of things damage him? I mean, he's tried to portray himself as this sort of Every man, and it just yeah. never works. It never and works. It, well, he has this blue tr pickup truck. He drives around the province as if he's a, an everyman. You're it's right. ridiculous. He, and, he, and he tends to wear a blazer when he's driving. He, he takes the tie off, though. He's on a blazer. He's driving this blue truck around. But yeah, it, it's interesting. You wonder how these things are going to play, uh, these, these issues, because, yes, uh, he, he was. this is him pumping gas. And for all the cameras to see, as he was you know, announcing April 1st, uh, he's lifting the 13 cent per liter carbon, uh, sorry, the uh, fuel tax, fuel tax right. in Alberta. And saying so here, you know, he's a champion of the every, everyday working person. And he gets the, the, the uh, nozzle stuck and he can't get out of the truck. It's quite funny. Now, he's made fun of it himself. He's actually poked fun at it, which is actually the right thing to do. But you yeah, got to wonder how these things work. Because sometimes when a politician's in trouble, these things that kind of snowball. You think back to, um, okay. I'm of certain age, uh, PC Stanfield. leader. <laughs> yeah, Robert Stanfield. Robert Stanfield. Robert Stanfield. When he, he, yeah, he, yeah, he, he dropped that football. He was playing catch. 1974 election, federal election, and uh, here's a progressive conservative leader, Robert Stanfield, playing catch with his aides, and he fumbles a football, and there's a, oh. a photographer takes a picture, and it looks terrible, and that helped convince people who weren't too sure about him that he, you know, he can't. Nope. I'm down to my last 10 oh. seconds, Graham. I'm going to so, have to so, say you know, good night. So it Thanks might, so much it for your time. Hurt. I appreciate it. You're yeah. very welcome.